repetitive and, and you know. But if you listen to that and you, and you go through each of those choruses, there's amazing theology found in there. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the theology of the hymn. But first, let me just give you a bit of background about the song itself. The song was first... Um, the, well, let's go back to the music. The music was first music 140 years and one day ago. Isn't that astonishing? 140 years and one day ago, um, a lady called Mrs. Palmer, um, she was a very rich person, lived in New York, and she had a friend, and her friend's name was Fanny Crosby. And Fanny Crosby was very poor, she was blind, but they were very good friends. And um, Fanny's friend had an organ put into a house for her birthday. And uh, as they were putting the organ in, she was, she was teaching around with it, and she, sung, she, she put a tune together. And yesterday, 140 years ago, was her birthday, Mrs. Phelps. So Fanny goes over to have coffee and cake, or tea and cake, or whatever they did back in those days. And Mrs. Phelps plays a tune. And she says to Fanny, what does this mean to you? And Fanny straight away said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Straight away, as soon as she heard those, those, those tunes, that's exactly what she said. And from that, the song was birthed. And a few weeks later, they started actually singing the song in their church. And, you know, I don't know if you know much about Fanny Crosby. She was an incredible woman of God. She lost her sight, um, they say, at the age of six weeks old. She had an eye infection, and what they did was they, back in those days, they weren't sure what to do. So a six-year-old baby had an eye infection. So they got these little gauze things, they put mustard all over it, and they chucked it on her eyes. That's all they did. And um, she lost her sight. So she grew up without any sight. Um, her parents were not wealthy at all. Um, she struggled um, in her life a fair bit. But because of those struggles and before, because of what she went through and because her life was a difficult one. I mean, these days, you know, blind people have got CNI dogs and they've got walking canes and everything like that. Back in those days, they didn't have those things, those luxuries. So she did have a hard life. But out of that hard life came 8,000 hymns. 8,000 hymns. Isn't that incredible? You know, you, you think about writing a hymn. I, I think I've always thought if I could write a book, I'd be, that'd be great. I'd love to write a book. If I could write a song, that'd be even better because I don't know anything about music. So that would be a miracle of God. <laughs> but, you know, this woman that couldn't see, couldn't, you know, you know, she, was, she, was, she had every disadvantage that anyone had. She could have just sat down and given up and said, well, I don't want to do this, it's too hard. But instead, this woman chose not to do uh, what we would do, what I would do. I'd uh, lay in the corner and cry for myself. This woman penned this song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. What a statement. What a statement. Blessed Assurance. You know, she, her whole life was a life of difficulty and struggle. But on this day, that's what she penned down. She lived to be 95 years old. In an era where people didn't live that long. So God was truly with her. The hymn is an incredible hymn. Blessed assurance Jesus is mine. That is an incredible statement. She was so sure of who Jesus was in her life. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a struggle, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, we, we, want, we want to do the right thing. We want to be the right people. We want to do everything that we're supposed to do. We want to attend every service we want to, we're supposed to attend. We want to make sure. But here's a lady that's blind. She's been blind all her life. 
And when someone says, what does this tune mean to you? It's the first thing she says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, there's such a, 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 a theological truth to the whole statement. Now, in our postmodern era, you know, we would um, probably understand that statement a little different to the way she understood it. You know, if you go up to someone in the street and you would say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, what does that mean? And they say, well, you know, Jesus is mine, I own him. You know, when I pray, he does what I do, what I tell him to do. You know, I, I'm, the, uh, I'm the one that's pulling the strings. But back in those days, Fanny meant this. Jesus, Jesus, he's mine. He's mine. Close to my heart. Close to who I am as a person. No matter what comes against me, Jesus is there. No matter what struggles I face, Jesus is there. No matter how hard my life is, Jesus is there. He's mine. He, he is what it's all about. And that's what she meant. And when you look at it with those glasses on, with, with those glasses of a lady that was blind all her life, and you sit there and you think, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. How blessed are we to live in the nation we live in, the time we live in, this church that we call home? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So what I want to do is I want to look at some of the theological truths. So the first thing I want to look at is, is just that term. We are blessed. What this talks about is assurance of salvation, a blessed assurance of her future and how future in Christ. A blessed assurance that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. A blessed assurance that I am, that we are overcomers. A blessed assurance that we are blessed by God. A blessed assurance that with Christ, with Christ with us, then who can stand against us? A blessed assurance that what we, sorry, a blessed assurance that what lives in us is greater than in the world. That's what this song is all about. Jesus is ours. I could go on for hours and hours and hours. It would make a really long song. I suppose that's why she kept it to the, to the short verses she did. But if you think about it, all the benefits that we get through Christ and all the blessings that Christ brings into our lives, we are a blessed people. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the times ahead. That's a fabulous passage of scripture. Jesus is ours. Not in an ownership type way, but in a relationship type way. He's closer than a friend. He's the reason we do what we do. And that's what Fanny was singing about. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Go to Acts 14 if you've got your Bibles with you. Acts 14, 24. The God who made the world... And everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by hands. Everyone say amen to that. 
And he is not served by human hands. As if he needs anything. Because he himself gives all men life, breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men. That they would search, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and exact places where they should live. If you're here this morning, it's no accident. God has determined that you would live here. You know, we, we make choices through life that take us to places. Well, don't worry. God gave that choice to you. And he made sure that you made the right choice. God did this so that. Everyone say, so that. So that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him through him. Though he's not far away, sorry, for each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets have said. Now, just let me put a bit of context to this statement. Paul is in Athens, and he's walked around Athens, and he's seen a statue that says, um, you know, to the, to the nameless God, basically, to the God with no name. So what Paul is saying is that, that God with no name is this. It's, it's the Lord. It's, it's, it's Jehovah. It's Jesus. To an unknown God, he said, this is the Lord. One of the areas of life that most Christians struggle with is being sure of who we are in Christ. Many years ago, I um, was sitting with a pastor of a church and he talked to me about his mother. His father had passed away and he went to visit his mother um, in another state. And when he got back, we were talking. I was in New South Wales at the time. And he was talking about how his mother had, she'd been a pastor's wife all her life. And his mother said a profound thing to him when he was uh, over there visiting. She said that she wasn't sure that she would go to heaven. Now that's really sad. For someone to live their whole life as a Christian being involved in the church, this lady turned to her son with tears in her eyes and said, if I died today, I wouldn't be sure that I was going to heaven. What a sad, sad thing to say. Part of this song is all about a blessed assurance. Now Christ died for us and he died that uh, he would take our sins. And for some of us, that's a lot of sin. For the rest of us, it's a lot of sins we just don't tell anyone about. Amen? Or a lot of sins we don't confess to or a lot of sins that we don't think are sins. But either way, each one of us is the same. We live according to God's grace. In ourselves is nothing that is good. The only thing that makes us good is Jesus in our lives. And the sooner we come to that realization, the better off we are as Christians to start with, but as men and women and, and uh, as people of God in the church. In ourselves, there is nothing that is good. But in Christ, He gives us everything. In Christ, He is the reason we breathe, we live, we have our being. In Christ, all things are possible. And we'll read that later. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. Now, we know in Romans it says that when we're our sinful worst, Christ died for us. Not many of you were wise by human standards. I can say amen to that, anyone else? Not many of you were influential. Not many were born of noble birth. 
But God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is how righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what Fanny Crosby was doing in this song. She was boasting of the Lord. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. He is the reason for everything. He is my hope and my future. He's my past and my present. He's my forever. She was boasting of who he was. And as Christians, that's what we should do. We should always be ready to give an account of the glory that that God's put in our lives. I've been in church a long, long time. Longer than I care to admit. And I've heard a lot of people in churches complaining. Not in this church. (laughs) But in church, generally, people complain a lot. The context to that scripture is this. For the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is what it's all about. We shouldn't complain and grumble and, and, and try and get our way. What we should be doing is sacrificing as Jesus did on the cross. He is our example. He is the one that we should follow. We should be willing to sacrifice all that we have for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what we should be doing. And Fanny Crosby was a classic example of a person who did that. She could have sat in the corner and said, Woe is me, I can't see. But instead, she wrote 8,000 hymns so that people would hear and would visualize who God is. Who He is and what He's done. You know, God's chosen the foolish things of the world. I always thank Him for that because then I got on board. You know, if he chose the wise things of the world, I and all of you would be out in the cold. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I know some of you for sure. No, joking. Jesus is the answer. He is everything. And sometimes as Christians, we lose sight of that. Sometimes as Christians, we get so busy with life, with church, with all the other things we do, we just take our eyes off that cross. Fanny was blessed because she could never take her eyes off the cross because she couldn't see. She couldn't see, so her eyes were always on that cross. Christianity is not easy. In fact, Jesus promises that you're going to have hardship. That's a reality. That's a reality of the Christian life. Jesus promises, there's a promise in in the New Testament, Jesus says, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. There will be problems. That's why we're called overcomers. You know, if you read the book of Revelations, the church that gets the the most kudos is the church that overcomes. And as Christians, that's what we're meant to be, overcomers. Fanny Crosby was an overcomer. No matter what got in her way, she overcame it. And here is a song of testimony of how she did it. She looked at Jesus, the author and the perfecter of her faith. She didn't take her eyes off the cross. She didn't look left or right. She wasn't concerned about the things of this world. She thought about the things from above. And if we want to be successful as Christians in this time, in this period of the history of the world, then that's what we need to do. 
We cannot change the world unless our focus is Christ. We might want to change the world. One of the saddest things we do in church is we try and change the world and our focus becomes the world. If we've got our eyes fixed firmly on Christ, the rest will look after itself. But if we're looking so hard at the world and we're not looking at Jesus, we have no chance of changing the world. The only way to change the world is to look at Christ. Look at the cross. See what was done for us. We don't have to be smart and intelligent. We're the foolish ones. All we need to know is the truth. And the truth is that Jesus died on the cross. That he was raised again. Ooh. It, says, it says delete whole sermon. Should I do that? No, okay. He died and rose again on the third day. He came and he met with his disciples. In the book of Matthew, chapter 28, it says that he was on a mountain. They came to him. He said, go out to all the earth, preaching the good news and baptizing. And that's what we're called to do. Each and every one of you is called to do that. You don't have to be a preacher. These guys that Jesus said this to were not pastors. They were not missionaries. They were his followers. Are you a follower of Jesus today? Then that's what we're called to do. To preach the gospel to all the world. Now, for you, that might be in your classroom. It might be your classmates. It might be your work. It might be your work friends. It might be the people on the train that you travel with every day. But that is what we're meant to do. This song is all about boasting about Jesus and the relationship that Fanny Crosby had with Jesus. Let me ask the question, are you boasting about Jesus? Are you telling your friends and your church mate and your sorry workmates and, and people at school what God's done for you? Because He has taken you out of the miry clay. He has sat you upon the rock that is Himself. He protects you, He looks after you. Sure things happen. And and things do happen in Christians, there's no doubt about it. But in all things, there's a way through it in Christ. And all those things that we go through, they, they produce all sorts of things, perseverance and hope and faith and all those things that we need, that we need. Without those challenges in our life, those things aren't produced. Later on in Paul's, right, in Paul's life, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we, everyone say we, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. You know, Paul had a real hard time at one point of his life. He really thought that he'd run his race in vain. In Galatians 2, 1 and 2, it says this. 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and sat before them. He's talking about the leaders in Jerusalem at the church. I sat before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be the leaders. For, uh, for fear, he had a fear that he was running the race in vain. 
When I read this, my mind went straight back to that pastor's mother who was worried about the fact that she she might not be going to heaven. And here, Paul himself. I mean, we, we look at Paul as the great hero. We look at Paul as the great mighty man of God that, you know, went through shipwrecks and was whipped and was lowered in a basket and went hungry and went naked. You know, this is the guy. He, he'd, been, he'd been through everything for Jesus. But in this passage of Scripture, he opens up the door a little bit to his, to his fears and his doubts. As Christians, sometimes, there might be a little bit of fear and doubt in your heart. But let me tell you one thing. That if you're with Jesus, if you're with Him, and your life is living according to His Word and His teaching, and you're doing the right thing, then no matter what the devil says, God is with you. No matter what happens, God is with you. God is the God of grace and mercy and peace. God is the God of the children that follow him. In verse 10 of the previous verse, which was uh, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, 1 to 13, says this. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from spiritual rocks that accompanied them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, for their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolatrous, as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, got up, indulged in pagan rivalry. Revelry, sorry. We do not want you... Sorry, lost my place. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Who knows iPads are great except when you press the wrong button. We should not commit sexual immorality. Some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened. Everyone say, these things happened. These things happened to them in an example and were written down as a warning for us on how, on how the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Everyone say, he will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. Temptations come, amen. They come. But what we need to do as the children of God is to stand firm. The devil went to uh, Christ in the desert and he tempted him. We know the passage of Scripture. He went to him and he said, you know, turn this rock to bread and do this and do that and I will give you all this. And Jesus each time refuted him with Scripture. And in our lives as Christians, things will always come our way. But it's what we do about it that matters. It's how we deal with it that matters. Blessed assurance comes from one thing. It comes from a life with Christ living according to what he's called us to live. 
1 Corinthians 3, 13, 8 to 12 says this, Love never fails, for where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Now he's talking about the end of times here. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. I know in part, then I shall know in full, even as I'm fully known. One day we will stand in heaven. One day each one of us will stand before God. And the Bible says that we're going to give an account. That we've got to give an account for the things we've done. Now that's very terrifying. When you look at the uh, history of uh, the Jewish people and you look at the way they kept following God and not following God and following God and not following God and then you look at the history of the church, that's even worse. You know, in the name of the church, people killed others. You know, in the name of the church, people you know, disembodied other people. In the name of the church, people tried to hide the Bible in a hidden language for centuries so that people wouldn't read it. In the name of religion, people have tried to kill the men and women of God again and again and again throughout history. It would be a terrifying place to be in front of God one day for those people. We're going to talk about um, Paul later. And uh, Paul went around killing Christians. That was his job. He went around and he killed them. And when he was named Saul, before he found Jesus on the Damascus Road. What a terrifying place to be in front of God if he didn't repent. Amen? Imagine standing there in front of God as, as Saul and saying, I thought I was doing it for you. I mean, the Bible tells us, Jesus says that in the end times, people will come and they'll say, Lord, Lord, we did all these wonderful things for you. We, we healed the sick, you know, we've done this, we've done that, and we've done this. And what is the one thing Jesus says? He says, get away from me, you doers of evil. And these people are people that thought they were doing it for God. So that is a scary thing for me. But I have an assurance because of the relationship I have with Christ. Because of that relationship that we have with Christ, that we are safe. It's not because I'm doing things for God. It's not because I've been to Bible college and, you know, I'm an ordained minister of the Australian Christian churches. That means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. What is important is that I am with Christ and that He is with me. That's what matters. That's what gives us our blessed assurance. Our blessed assurance doesn't come because we do A, B, C and D. Our blessed assurance comes because we love Christ. We have Him in our lives. That's how the blessed assurance comes. And that's what Fanny Crosby was talking about. That first passage of, of the hymns she sings, there's a whole lot of little... Um, phrases that I'm just going to quickly go through and I'm just going to show you what it means to be in that place where you can have assurance purchase of God 1 Timothy 2 5 to 6 for there is no there is sorry there is sorry there is one God sorry for there is one God and one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men the testimony given in its proper time we are purchased of God and Jesus was that ransom the next, the next passage of the song goes, Born of the Spirit. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, 
But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if we live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Just like the children of Israel in the desert. I added that bit in. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that we were revealed in the creation awaits in eager expectation of the sons of God to be revealed. One day, when Jesus comes back, all of creation, all of creation is going to stand and applaud the children of God. Isn't that an incredible thing? God created all there is. Nothing exists without God. And one day in the future, one day in the future, when we stand before Christ in, those final, um, in the final days of the earth and we sent off to heaven, and then there's a whole gamut of people that are giving um, accounts for their lives. Each time one of us goes through that experience and you know, God says, because you've done this, here's your reward. Because you've done that, here's your reward. You'll say, but you should have done this and you should have done that. Oh, you know, the, one of the parts of the Bible that really worries me is where it says that Jesus will wipe our tears away because we will be so upset with the things we should have done that we didn't do. You know, to me, that, that's tragic. You know, God's got a call on a destiny on all our lives. Make no mistake about it. You wouldn't be here. You'd be in heaven if, if God didn't have something for you to do. But because you're here, that immediately tells me that God has something for you to do with your life. Each and every one of you, each person sitting in the chair here, God has something for you to do. And one day in heaven, we will, we will face God. But after that, and after we get told what we should have done and what we didn't do, Jesus wipes the tears away. All of creation will rejoice. Every time he goes, here's a sheep. You know, it talks about separating the sheep from the goats. Every time Jesus herds us in with the sheep, there will be rejoicing. And it will be the whole universe that does it. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? It won't just be the angels. It won't just be the rest of the Christians. It will be all of creation. The stars, the animals, the plants, everything will rejoice, it says. So that's an incredible thing. I'm, I can't wait to see it. The next thing says that we're washed in his blood. Everyone say amen to that. Amen. Hebrews 9, 11, 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goat and cows, but entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. Having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls of the ashes of the heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremoniously unclean, sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hallelujah. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. The next theological truth 
I want to quickly look at. Perfect submission, perfect delight. We are called to surrender our lives to Christ in submission to his plans and purposes for our lives. When we do that, we have perfect delight. Proverbs 37.1 says this, Do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pastures. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him and he will, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. When we submit ourselves to God and our lives in submission to his will, we have the delight of God in our hearts and in our lives. But that is a hard thing to do, submit to God in all. Because we're still human. We still want to do whatever it is we want to do. But this is what Fanny Crosby was singing about. And this is what, um, this is what David wrote in the psalm. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Philippians 4, 4-7 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, be prayer. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. There's something extremely powerful about delighting in the Lord. The two people that immediately jumped to my mind is King David. Now, King David is echoed in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, as being one that uh, was after God's own heart. Samuel the prophet said it, and later it was said in the book of Acts as well. And David was a, was a man that delighted in the presence of God. He wrote most of the Psalms. And uh, he was um, someone that really passionately loved God. And that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to passionately love God. We're meant to passionately love God. In Psalm 144, David writes this, Praise be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hand and my fingers for battle. He is my loving God, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like fleeting shadows. Part your heaven, O Lord, and come down, touch the mountain, so that they may smoke. We are meant to be in love with Jesus. When I went to school, I was brought up in Catholic schools, and we were taught, I think I might have said this before, um, we were taught a very interesting thing. We were taught that God and Jesus are your Father, and they want to discipline you all the time. And that's what they taught us. And they said, therefore, if you want something from God, you've got to pray to Mary, because she's like your mother, and she's sweet and nice, you know, and... She will go and then she will, you know, talk to God and you'll get what you want. And that's what we were taught. But that's not the reality. The reality is that Jesus loves you. He loves you with a love that you will never understand until you see him face to face in heaven. That's when the revelation comes. And that's the only time revelation can come. When we see Jesus face to face, he looks us in the eye. We look him in the eye. That's when we finally understand God's love. You know, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That Jesus came to die 
That's the whole purpose of his reason on earth, so that we could have life and life ever, last, ever, ever after. He came to set the captives free. He came to set the captives free. And what we need to do is we need to understand that love. The other person that jumps to mind when thinking about this is the Apostle John. Revelations 4 says this. Uh, sorry, let me just go back. The Apostle John was, um, was one that was very close to Jesus. In the Last Supper, um, John actually sat next to Jesus with his head on the, on the chest of Jesus. And John was one that was truly loved by Jesus. And Jesus loved him and he loved Jesus. Not that Jesus has favorites. But John understood things that some of the other apostles didn't understand. John had received that revelation that Jesus was what it was all about. You know, even when, even, when, even when they went on the mountain to see Jesus after he was resurrected, some of them still didn't understand. Some of them still didn't understand that Jesus died for, to release them from their sins. But John did. And John had an amazing life. He was exiled to Patmos at one stage. And um, he had a revelation. So I just want to read that because uh, it is quite incredible. Revelations 4. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third was the face of a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around them, even under their wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, fall down before him, who sit on the thrones and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now they're talking about Jesus there. We've already read that earlier. The most important thing we can do in our lives is to love Jesus. That is the most important thing we can do. You know, if you go to heaven, if you go to heaven and God says, listen, I wanted you to go and be a missionary in India, but you never went, you're going to have tears in your eyes. But if you love him here, he will say, but come in, friend. That is the most important thing, to love Jesus. To love Jesus is the most important thing. I talked earlier about when the people that have uh, done all these miracles, healed the sick, raised the dead in the name of the Lord, and Jesus says, get away from me because I did not know you, you, you doers of evil. It is all about knowing Jesus. It is all about knowing Jesus. And that's what we need to try to achieve in our lives. If you can do one thing in your life, I can, I can, I applaud with you to do that. Get to know Jesus. It is the most important thing you can do. You know, you might go and change the world. You might invent the next um, miracle cure for cancer. You might change the world we live in. You might, you know, discover, you know, a, a planet far away. But if you don't love Jesus, it's all for nothing. You need to love Jesus. The third theological truth that we find in the hymn is perfect submission, all is at rest. Thank God for that, amen. 
Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Praise the God of heaven and earth for that. Life is hard at times. Times life is a struggle. But when Jesus is there, he shares the burden. Now he talks about this yoke, and we all, most of us probably know what that is. The yoke is a, is a piece of timber that they put across the, the beast that plow the field. And what it does is it helps them to drag along the plow that digs up the earth. One, one beast can do it, but two can do it much better. And it shares the burden and, and makes it so that the, these animals don't die at a young age. So that's the whole purpose of the yoke. It is something that helps the animals live longer, that doesn't put as much stress on them as what it would do if they were doing themselves. Jesus wants to do that with us. You've all um, read or heard of the, uh, the poem Footprints and the guy's walking along and he discovers that different parts of his life when he was having his biggest struggles that there was only one set of footprints. And he says to the Lord, he says, why is there only one set of footprints? The hardest points of my life, when I struggled the most, when I was in tears and crying out to you, why is there only one set of footprints? And Jesus turns and says, because I was carrying you. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. When we need him, he's there. When we need him, he is there. He makes how, how, how hard work easy. I've got uh, three beautiful daughters. I've got an extremely beautiful granddaughter. And my daughters are extremely beautiful too, but, you know. <laughs> but I've, you know, I've, my kids are all older growing up, and I forgot what it was like to have a little kid. I forgot the pure love that you feel for these kids. You know, I love my kids more than I could ever explain. But something that is little and defenseless you just want to protect them all the time you just want to carry them everywhere you don't want them to stub their toes you don't want them to to ever find out that there's bad things in the world and that's what jesus wants to do with you and me he wants to walk with you he wants to take your burden he wants to carry the load with you but so many times in life we just try and do it ourselves so many times in life we just try to Work it out ourselves. That's not what Jesus wants. 1 John 3, 16, 24 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not just love with words or tongues, but with action and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Peace comes from Christ. It cannot come from any other way. The gospel of, Jesus, the gospel of John, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus comes to them and says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives it. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. There is a rest and a peace that comes through Christ. That doesn't mean that we're not busy. That doesn't mean that we don't have things to do. But in the midst of all that we have to do, there is Christ 
who gives us that peace and that rest. There is Christ that carries the burden with us. There is Christ that makes life bearable. This morning you might be here and you might think you're having a hard time at the moment. Jesus wants, he wants so much to carry you through that. Acts chapter four, chapter 9, 1 to 4 says this, and it's about Saul, who, once was Paul, who now is called Paul. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters in the synagogue of Damascus so that he, he could find any, believe, any people that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them in prison to Jerusalem. And he neared Damascus on his journey, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to his face when he heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul in Philippians says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. At all, at last, you have renewed your concerns for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I learned to be content whatever the circumstances is. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be, have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him that strengthens me. That is probably the most, um, that piece of scripture is probably the most, un, one that's quoted out of context than any other scripture in the world. He is not saying that he can sit and examine ASIT because Christ is with him. He's not saying that he can get a new job because Christ is with him. He's not saying that he can conquer Mount Everest because Christ is with him. He is saying, no matter what hardship faces me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because hardship will come. Pain will come. Tears will come. But in the midst of all that, we have Christ. So this morning, I've got a question for you. What's your story? What's your song? Can you look to heaven this morning and sing from your heart, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. In him I have perfect delight. And in him I have rest and peace. Because that's what we should be able to do. I'm going to ask the choir to come back up and we're going to sing, they're going to sing the song again, we're going to sing it again. But I believe this morning that God is in the house. I believe this morning that he wants to touch the lives of people. I honestly believe that with all my heart. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, God wants to meet you. He wants to give you that blessed assurance. He wants to rekindle that relationship that maybe is not going where it should go. That's what Jesus wants to do this morning. As Christians, we, especially in this era of, uh, of the history of the world, we live in a fast-paced world that has a lot of demand on all that we do. And in the midst of that noise and that busyness that we find ourselves in, Christ is here. And this morning, he wants to touch lives. He wants to rekindle that relationship. You might not be backslidden. You might not be, you know, you know, walked away from God at all. You just might not be connecting the way you should. And you know that in your spirit, in your heart. This morning, God wants to change that. So we're going to sing, and please stand with me and sing.